so the question was asked, practically, how do you communicate treasure to your spouse? How do you communicate treasure value to your spouse? Um, and so the first one is listening to them and getting to know them, and then reacting to what you now know about them. It, it really comes down to that. There are generalities. Um, for example, be nice to them. There's a good one. Um, do no harm. That's a nice, that's a nice uh, way to show that something is treasure to you. Um, be willing to carry the burden. One of the things you know about treasure, um, one of the ways you know something is treasure, is if it, even if it's a burden, and by the way, we're all burdens to one another. Let's, let's stop worrying about that. Of course we're burdens to one another. Of course we're disappointments to one another. That's welcome to the human race. Um, but I'll tell people when they're like, oh, I feel like I'm such a burden. I'm like, you are a burden. Of course you're a burden. Like, what's, what's the big surprise about that? Of course you're a burden. So I'll say, I've got a big pile of gold over here in my room. I'll let you take as much of it. Oh, there it went again. Anyway, I'm going to let you take as much of it as you want with you when you leave the session today. How much will you carry? And most people say, well, as, as much as I can. Like, oh, but that's an awful burden. Like, man, that's, and that gold is heavy. I know they show in movies that it doesn't look all that heavy, but really, it's, it's quite heavy. I mean, it's, that's a terrible burden. Surely you don't want to carry that much. Like, no, I'm going to carry all I can. Like, right, because a burden is not a big deal if it's treasure. Right? <laughs> a treasure burden is, is one you're happy to carry. So, of course, of course we're burdens to each other. Of course we annoy each other. Of course we demand each other. Of course life would be easier if we didn't have to deal with these children and these spouses and all these people. We say all the time, like, church would be so much fun if it wasn't for all these people. Right? Man, think of all the fun we could have here if we wasn't for all these people messing stuff up. So... Of course we're a burden to each other. But if we're also understood to be treasure, then it's a burden we're happy to carry. So the, if you want to, I mean, the basic reading, there's Feldman's books, his um, For Men Only, For Women Only, lists some things that are generally speaking. The way you want to read those is with each other. You want to be in each other's presence when you read them so that you can say like, wait, is this right? Because she'll show you that it's only, a lot of the things we say, this is always true of men or this is always true of women, is only about a 70-30% split. Um, Anyway, but um, there's a great book called The Blessing by Smalley and Trent from about a million years ago that talks about how to bless your children. But it turns out pretty much all of them work with your spouse too. Um, and so that's a great one. The Love Languages, of course, which everyone's familiar with. Um, Chapman's book, The Love Languages, they're a great place to start. I I've certainly don't love all of this. I don't like the fact that he puts sex under physical touch. It's a totally separate, independent thing. But... But it's also hard to define. There's probably 60 love languages. He just picked five, and um, I got to hear him speak when he was first developing the idea, and I think he even thinks that. I think he thinks only God knows how many love languages there are, but there's at least these five, and these are good ones. But the, the, the key is, here's what's cool. You don't have to have a PhD in how to communicate treasure to everybody. Um, you do that by loving each other or whatever. You do have to have a PhD in how to love your spouse in such a way that it communicates treasure to them, and each of us are different. And so the things that communicate, that, that Ginger marrying me, that communicate treasure to me, if she'd married a different man, it might not work. That might not communicate the same thing to him. If I'd married somebody different, what would communicate being that I see her as treasure might be totally ineffective in help communicate that Ginger, which is fine because I didn't marry this other person and I don't care what makes them feel like treasure. What I'm concerned about is this one, right? And so I have to figure that out. And of course, we're terrible at it. So forgiving each other is a way to communicate treasure. Being patient with each other is a way of communicating treasure. Putting up with them when they're grumpy is a way of dealing with communicating with them with their treasure. When they're not at their best, whatever. And so, and then another one is self-improvement is a way to communicate to somebody else that they are treasure. 
If you go, listen, I love you enough that I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to grow in this way. I'm willing to learn these things. I'm willing to develop this. I'm willing to learn this skill or do this fun thing or whatever. Those are all ways. But everyone's different. I mean, they're generalities. Man, Gottman's got some great research material. Um, Understanding Women. Is that the name of that one? I've got, I'm about halfway through it. His, his are all research-based, just like Feldon's are. His are even more intensely research-based um, than Feldon's, but Feldon's are great. I'm going to reference a couple of hers before we're done here. So, All right, so let's talk about <clears throat> sex. So um, some, some issues, there's some issues that these, the way these kind of, some of these answers came to me over time, some of it was books and whatever, but I remember one of the ones that seemed intriguing to me was the story of Esther. So in the story of Esther, um, if you understand Esther to be a sweet romantic story, stop. It's not. Um, so you have Xerxes. Xerxes was the son of Darius. Um, and so Xerxes, um, the story begins with Xerxes um, asking his wife Vashti to come strip. Almost certainly it's a strip dance. To come dance for he and his men who are drunk. And almost certainly it means come strip for them and to come do an erotic dance for them. And she's gotten so high and mighty in her role as his queen that she says no. And so all the men go, man, what happens if the queen starts saying no to her husband? All the women are going to start saying no to stuff. And so you can't allow this. So, so Xerxes fires her, essentially, as queen. And, um, and so here we, here we have this account. So we, we have this account of him, that his people going out and finding a new queen for him, finding Esther. Now understand, this is, this is Medo-Persia. Um, this is not a sweet place. Xerxes considered himself God on earth. He was, he was nuts. Now Xerxes marched up somewhere in the area of, uh, of maybe 500,000, some people say 2 million men, all the way from Persia to Greece in order to punish the Greeks for defeating his father in a battle. How dare you defeat my father? He came, Darius came to invade the Greeks, to invade Greece. The Greeks stopped him. How dare you? So he shows up with the largest army that's ever marched on the planet. This is 500 years before the birth of Christ. The largest army that's ever marched on the planet, and he walked him all the way to Greece, and he ran into a little narrow spot called Thermopylae, and there he ran into 5,000 Greeks led by 300 Spartans. That's Xerxes. On his way there, he goes they try to cross the Hellespont River. He builds these giant bridges to march his massive army across. A storm hits while they're crossing, and tens of thousands of his men are drowned in the storm as the bridges all collapse. This makes Xerxes mad. So Xerxes has the river Hellespont beaten. Literally lines the bank with men with whips. And they beat the Hellespont River into submission. How dare you cross Xerxes. And then they have handcuffs and chains thrown into the river to bind it in place while they build bridges again and cross it. That's Xerxes. Okay? That's who you're dealing with. So Xerxes has only God knows how many concubines. Only God knows how big Xerxes' harem would have been. Apparently, you got kidnapped and put in his harem, and, and you spent a year preparing for one, according to the Bible, a year preparing for one night with Xerxes. You got your one night with Xerxes. And they prepared you for a year to get there. Esther happens to have her one night and happens to, by the way, I'm using the Jewish language here because you know God's not mentioned in Esther. It's all kind of tongue-in-cheek like, it happened to happen this way. You're, that's, that's intentionally Jewish subtlety going like, obviously it didn't happen to happen that way. That's the whole point of the book. But So Esther, Esther happened to have her night with the king soon after Vashti had been fired. 
And so Xerxes is in the mood to make someone else queen. He has so much fun with Esther during his one night with her that he gives her a promotion the next day. And that's probably how we should understand it. That literally the next day he comes out and he's like, man, I really liked that one. Make her a queen. So this is such a romantic story that Xerxes does not see Esther for the next month. Nothing to do with her. Why? Because he had a different girl who had been preparing for a year the next night. And a different girl had been preparing for the year the next night, probably. Whenever he wanted to, at least. That's Xerxes. God on earth. If you've ever seen the movie 300, if you haven't, don't. It's terrible. It's terrible history. It's terrible everything. But if you have, the presentation of Xerxes in that movie is clearly not what Xerxes looked like. He was a 17-foot-tall giant covered with piercings. But that's probably how he thought of himself. That's probably a good representation of how Xerxes thought of Xerxes, right? As this giant god. So, so here, that's who we're dealing with. So remember what happens is Esther spends, she, she goes to the king and she says, hey, can I host a banquet for you tonight? Just you and Haman. So Xerxes, for whatever reason, is intrigued. They go have this dinner with Esther. Esther, the, new, the queen, who's been a queen for a month who he's not seen since. And he says, um, at the end of the dinner, she is so seductive, she's so sexy, she's so awesome during their dinner together that Xerxes says, I give you anything you want. What do you want? And what does Esther say? On night number one, anybody remember? Come back tomorrow night. Now, does that seem odd to you? What does Xerxes do? He leaves with Haman to come back tomorrow night. This is God on earth. He has a harem of thousands, probably. They are his property. They're his sex slaves. They have no life outside of being in his harem, which is actually probably a pretty good life. You only got to spend one night with the guy, right? Forever. And then you get you know, taken care of for the rest of your life. This is a, that's, that's the situation you're dealing with. And Xerxes doesn't say, that's funny, I have a different plan, Haman, take a hike. Why is Xerxes willing to postpone sexual gratification with Esther for one night? Why is he willing to wait till tomorrow night? Essentially, she says, come back tomorrow, big boy, Right? And he does. Here's why. Because men's number one need isn't sex. Sex isn't all men think about. You've been taught that. We've all been taught that, men and women. The truth is, what is powerful about sex to men is what sex means. Not what sex is. It's what sex means. And all the research backs this. Many men in the room right now are already going like, "I, I just thought it was me. I thought I was the weird one. Everybody else talks about sex like it's just a thing, but it's never, it's not, it doesn't feel that way to me. So that was intriguing to me. Then you find, start having research done by people like Felden. So I'm going to tell, tell a story to kind of tell this, explain this, but by, in the context of a little bit of a story. I'm going to start by telling you this story is not about Ginger and I. So the first time I told this story, one of the first times, I guess the first time Ginger heard me tell this story, we came back, it was at a camp or whatever, and we came back and she was like, you need to tell everybody that's not us. <laughs> and I was like, no one thinks that's us. Everyone knows it's just a story. So I came in the next session, I was like, how many of you thought that that was us? I was talking about this morning, and everyone raised their hand. 
It's like, oh, wow. Okay, so this is not our story. Now, our story has moments that are very similar to some of the things in this story. I don't want to, mis I don't want to mislead you. We had to learn some of this stuff the hard way. I'm hoping you don't have to. Um, so here's the story. The story is <coughs> a young man, <coughs> um, that young couple gets married. And let's just go ahead and make them the weird oddity. They have no sexual hang-ups. Everybody has rules about sex by the time they get married, unless you're like, you know, a child bride or something. But you you have rules about sex, and you have misconceptions and misideas about sex. And and what happens is you begin to filter them through that lens. I'm going to explain that here in a second. But so they get married. For them, sex is a novelty. Neither one of them has any sexual trauma in their past. Neither one of them has any sexual abuse, and neither one of them has any sexual experience even. So if if you have any of that in your past before the marriage. It complicates things and makes all of what I'm about to describe worse. So we're starting with a couple, though, who has no sexual hang-ups. They have no sexual experience. For them, sex is a, is a, is a um, novelty. They've never gotten to experience this before. So they're newly married. They have, they're having, they have sex on a regular basis all the time, and there's no strings attached. Neither of them have ever thought to attach any strings to it. Okay? That's just not part of their thinking about sex at this point. He goes away for a weekend. Reveling in her new power in her man's life, which is how young wives often will engage with sexuality, enjoying the effect she has on him with sexuality, she says, you know, I'm going to rock his world when he gets back. And so she goes and buys something slinky, and she spreads rose petals to the bed, and she sets up candles or whatever when he comes home. He comes home and walks in and finds this pathway to the bed, and she welcomes her, him into her bed with her, naked and unashamed just enjoying each other, okay? You guys have been a relatively quiet crowd when I've asked questions, but you're going to need to give some, offer some feedback. Men only. What is that like? Okay. <laughs> the poetry has begun, right? <clears throat> let's, let's, use, let's, let's use some emotional words, feeling words. <laughs> Saw that coming. What emotion is being described by that sound? How does it feel? Guys, how does it feel? How do you feel in that moment? Awesome. We don't have time. Quick. Desired. Wonderful. Honored. Welcomed. Lucky. Yes. And by the way, ladies, you immediately thought he means lucky that he got to have sex. None of the men in the room interpreted it that way. I'll show you that in a minute. You, every time you hear something like that, the women are going to interpret it very differently than the men do. What else? Loved. Treasured. <laughs> Wanted. So what's interesting is some of the ladies are already going, we're still just talking about sex, right? Like that's, those are some powerful words. Wanted, loved, desired, welcomed. What a fascinating language. Welcomed. Um, years ago, thinking that one of the long projects I did, I spent about a year, year and a half, maybe a little longer than that, writing a, a, a poem for Ginger called Home. I'm not going to read it to you because it's a semi-erotic poem. But that's, that's what I feel. I feel home. This is where I'm supposed to be. This is where I belong. This is home. That's, I thought that was really clever. It turns out Billy Joel wrote a song years ago called Home. 
About half the time, maybe a third of the time, if I have a large group and I ask that question, one of the men in the room will say, home, welcomed, where I belong. You hear pretty extreme language sometimes. I'm cutting you off early. This might have gotten to this. But like all is right with the world. Like I'm the only one who matters. Like I, I'm on top of the world. I'm the king of the world. Like this, this very powerful poetic language. She revels in that. They enjoy that. Let me tell you part of why that is. <clears throat> the research seems to be, so Felden writes this, her, her book to men only, women only. One of the brilliant chapters is she writes in the chapter to women. If you say no to your husband sexually, you need to know this. You are saying no to your husband. Here's why I think that is. Men integrate sexuality into our identity. Okay? In other words, it comes naturally to us. Remember that from last night? It comes naturally to us. It doesn't, we need a reason to not engage sexually. We don't need a reason to engage sexually. Now let's just pause right here and make sure you hear. This isn't about sex drive. This isn't about sex frequency. That's about a 70-30. Though you can write lots of books make a lot of people laugh by saying that, that men always want sex more often than women. And it's true a huge percentage of the time. 70-80% of the time that is true. But understand that means that 20-30% to 30%, they feel like circus freaks at every, every wedding thing, that every marriage thing they go to because everybody else is laughing at those jokes and she's going, I wish my husband would engage with me more often. I'm not talking about the engagement, uh, the frequency, or whatever. A lot of, there are a lot of reasons why men might not engage sexually as often as the wife would want them to. That's, there's a lot of psychological reasons for that, or it may just be a testosterone reason. I mean, there's a lot of things for that. That's not really what I'm talking about. I want us to understand the interpretation of sex and why that's messed us up, I think. So <clears throat> it's not that men want to have sex and don't care about that kind of stuff. Another one of Feldon's questions was, if you could have sex with your wife anytime you wanted, but she was never going to be into it, would you consider that a satisfying sex life? Almost no men answered yes to that. Like the numbers are so low, it's diagnosable. It's within the range of the people who are diagnosably sociopathic and narcissistic and psychotic. Like it's, it's just a, it's a tiny percentage because that isn't the truth for men. And also on counseling, you'll have a man who thinks that's what he wants, and so I'll just ask him, like, so you're okay with, like, if she asks you to install a TV in the ceiling of your bedroom so that she can watch her shows while you're having sex with her? <laughs> and he'll be like, well, no. Like, right, because it turns out it isn't sex. It's what sex means. And without any research based, for about 20 years, Christian publishers wrote that sex was men's number one need. And it turns out they were probably damaging more marriages than they were helping. Churches still use that material to teach marriage classes. I mean, I love to go into the offices and be like, let's pull that out, pull that out. I'm not a book burner, but I'll burn those. And these are good, godly men and women who wrote these books. And they believed they were doing help. They just didn't know that in the therapist's office were finding out how much damage is actually being done with this. Because it reinforces this idea, all men care about is sex, which is what all the women have been taught. And you're all around, all, many of the women are going like, taught, experienced. I know this from experience. I'm going to show you how you filter that why, that, why that seems to be your experience. Okay, so men integrate it in their identity. One of the questions, one of the times this came to me was really fascinating, was early on in counseling, having a couple come in and having the woman say, I wish he would touch me more non-sexually. Right? And I would go... Okay, tell me more about that. Because in my head I'm thinking, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't divide out touch that way. 
I need a reason to not engage sexually with my wife. I don't need a reason to engage sexually. I need a reason not to. I mean, I don't cop a feel at church, right? I have a reason not to. It's church, right? Um, so I really think I can get away with it, right? That's right. But I, I don't need a reason. I don't need a reason to pat my wife on the rear end as I walk through the house when it's just the two of us. I don't need a reason to that. I would need a reason to not do that. And I would need a sufficient reason to not do that, right? I engage as sexually as the conditions allow. I would, I, I need, if, if the conditions allow this much sexual expression, then that's how much I'm going to... Like, I, I need a reason to not do that. And until I understood how Ginger interpreted that, I didn't have a reason not to. It's just as confusing for us men that women, that you women, don't do that. You're wandering through the house. You just walked past me. You didn't pat me on the rear end. Why not? <laughs> Okay? This, is, this is an important distinction that you're going to see how this creates so much trauma. Because as men, we integrate it to our identity. We don't divide it out. We don't see that difference. We don't go, oh, I'm going to touch my wife sexually now and not sexually now. I had to understand that what, what these women meant was the parts of my body covered by my underwear. Because here's what's wild. Women typically do not bring their sexuality, they don't integrate sexuality into their identity. In fact, most of you as women have spent most of your life seeing your own sexuality as something that your identity was in competition with. You see your sexuality the way, say, a wealthy single man would see his money. Every single time a man has shown interest in you, you've said, is this about me or is this about sex? You've asked that thousands of times. Because you don't think that sex, and in in your mind, it's not intuitive for you to integrate sexuality and identity. So you see them as independent of each other. And the more sexual experience and sexual trauma you've experienced, the more dramatic that divide is. But all of you have been traumatized sexually to some degree because you've seen a Cosmo magazine or you've watched the media or the way the women are presented sexually in the media. As always, it's, it's always about that to some degree or another. Everybody has been sexually traumatized in our country. Can you imagine 100 years ago just the ads that run now on, between children's cartoons? It was only a hundred years ago that women fainted when the word damn was used in a movie. It was a hundred years ago. And so uh, there's always been pornography, there's always been that kind of stuff, but now our culture just lays it out there for everybody to see. We're more like the Roman culture or the Greek culture or the Baal-worshipping cultures that just put sex out there for everyone to see on display all the time. And it's traumatizing. It's not what sex is about. So this is a sex, sex in, the, in the intimate realm, sex is not a secret, but it is still private. Because it's a, it's a private thing between two people. It's not a secret. That's over here. It's not a secret that a newlywed couple is having sex. No one, no one is shocked to hear that. It's not a secret. But it is private. They're not going to tell you the details. I mean, you're not supposed to know the details about it. It's private. But this is a... So understanding this, this integration. Men integrate sexuality into our identity. And so if, you pers- if my wife pursues me sexually, I think she's pursuing me. The core of who I am. But understand that intuitively for women, when a man pursues her sexually, she doesn't necessarily think she's pursuing, he's pursuing her. She intuitively, because she divides them out, thinks he's pursuing sex. You see that difference? That's a tiny difference that is creating massive chasms of problems in our marriages, in Christian marriages. This, this one little difference, he integrates into his identity. He needs, so if something's integrating your identity, 
It costs little or no psychological energy to engage in, but it comes with a big bonus. Remember that last night? So engaging, so if it's the end of an exhausting day and I'm completely toast and I'm really psychologically burned out and Ginger says, hey, you feel like messing around? I'm going to say, yes. <laughs> oh, that sounds awesome. But the end of an exhausting day, it does not integrate into her identity and most women's identity is not, maybe all women's, but I'm going to say most because I've not done the research to this degree, but to most women's identity. And so what happens is that means it costs her some psychological energy to engage in. That doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't mean she doesn't like it. One of the ways we study it, we see it in mops all the time, the mother of preschoolers. So I teach on this with mops constantly. They're desperate to learn something because their sex life has recently suddenly gotten really jacked up. And they don't know why. All of a sudden, their husband's mad. They're mad. They don't know. It was all great until just a few months ago. We were all great. It was all fine. So because he would want to mess around, cost her 20 points of psychological energy. She had 40 points laying around. Sure, why not? Right? Now, she has a child. She has zero energy. He wants to mess around, and she's going, man, I can't. And he's going, can't? Doesn't cost any money. No one's telling you No burns calories, it's fun, didn't take that long, like what's the, right, what's the negative here, that's a, that's a, why wouldn't you, because again remember he needs a reason not to, but remember she needs a reason to engage sexually, so you're about to see how this becomes a, a train wreck too, <clears throat> so they say, um, in this situation, so we're doing mothers of preschoolers, and I will talk about this, and I will say, kind of as a joke, I'll okay, go, okay, your homework, your homework is to seduce your husband tonight. Have sex with your husband tonight. And all of these mothers of preschoolers all go, <sighs> now listen, that has nothing to do with whether they enjoy sex with their husband. That's not what they're doing. For some of them, there may be enough already trauma in their marriage that that's hard for them, but, but probably that's not the issue. What are they doing when they do that? They're allocating the energy. I guess I could not go to the store. <laughs> I, guess I, could, I guess I could not do dishes today. Um, and so what they're doing is they're trying to find those 20 points that it's going to cost them to engage sexually with their husband. That is not a negative. That doesn't, that's not a bad thing. It's just the way it is. It doesn't come naturally to her, so she's going to have to spend some psychological energy to engage sexually. And by the way, the more trauma and more experience she has, if she was having sex with guys in high school, then all of her early sex experience was with adolescence. Adolescent sexuality is not something to be prized. And so there's a huge gap there. Um, or, or worse, it was with abuse. One in three now we think women are sexually traumatized at least, and I mean directly, sexually assaulted before their adulthood, during their lifetime. So all of these things divide out even for, it's probably why women divide out their identity for sexuality is to protect themselves from the trauma of sexual abuse. And so there's even, all those gaps are even bigger. And so that's what's going on. Now here's what's wild. Watch this. So our young couple, they, uh, he goes away again for the weekend. And this time, having sex with him doesn't cross her mind. It just it doesn't come up. She's got a friend who needs her. She's got trouble in the home. There's whatever. She's not feeling great. Pick it. Whatever it is. It doesn't have to be a good reason. There just doesn't have to be a sufficient reason. It just doesn't cross her mind. So what's he hoping for when he comes home? 
Yeah, rose petals, right? Now stop for a second. Before you judge, do you remember the words that the guys used to describe what it felt like to be welcomed into his wife's bed? What kind of a delusory idiot would you have to be to not want those feelings? Don't judge somebody for wanting to feel wonderful, awesome, king of the world, home, welcomed. Don't, that's, of course he wants to feel that. That would be, it'd be dumb for him not to. It'd be really weird. Be like, man, I'm good. I don't need to feel wonderful ever again. That's fine. That's <laughs> of course he wants to feel that. There's nothing weird about that. And it's cool that you have the power to create those feelings in him. It doesn't require you to do it. It's cool to know that it's there. So she doesn't even think about it. It doesn't cross her mind, right? That sex before he left, probably great, right? Who, she didn't even think about it. So he comes home, she's in head-to-toe flannels, and she's two-thirds asleep, right? <laughs> so here's what's wild. He comes home hoping. Now, again, depending on his level of maturity, and his men were so unprepared to be married, that he certainly hopes for, wishes, desires that. Nothing wrong with that. If you don't get those three things, you're just disappointed. And we're all allowed to be disappointed. We've got to grow up. However, especially if he's adolescent thinking or narcissistic thinking, which most of us as young men are, he expects that type of response or feels entitled to that type of response. And that's when it becomes really dangerous. Expectations and entitlement, in my opinion, has no place in marriage, none. Has almost no place in the Christian life. No place in marriage, none. I, don't, I, don't, I want everything to be a gift. Remember how I said yesterday, how do you make something not a gift? You do it yourself. There's actually another way, and that's you demand it. So you cannot, for example, you ever demanded respect from somebody? Yeah, you can get them to behaviorally act like they respect you. You cannot make someone respect you. You can demand, they can humor you, they can even obey you, but they, do, they are not submitting to you. They are not loving you. They are not respecting you. That has to be done. On, only they can do that. It's a decision they make. So he comes home. She's in head-to-toe flannels. She's two-thirds away asleep. He climbs in bed. She rolls over, gives him a little kiss. So glad you're home, honey. Rolls back over, goes to sleep. Okay? Guys, what does that feel like? It's okay. <laughs> We're all friends. Here. Alone. Dismissed. Huh? Let down. Disappointed. Keep going. Rejected. Unwanted. Ordinary. <laughs> That'll get you. <laughs> Good word. Yeah. <clears throat> now, here's what's wild. Men, so you'll know, in Felden's book, to you, to us, it says, understand that your wife can say no to sex without saying no to you. Psychologically, she's just saying no to sex. That's nothing to do with you. She doesn't play badminton either. That's not that. <laughs> It's a behavioral choice. We could have sex. We could read a book. We could go to bed. We could do all these different things. And, and I, don't, I don't choose sex. That's not to do with you. That's not to do with us. They're not, not choosing us. They're just not choosing sex. But remember in Feldman's book to the women, it says you just need to know when you say no to sex, you're saying no to your husband. Because men don't divide it out. Men, women do divide it out. You say no to sex without saying no to me. 
So in fact, here's what's wild. So men, you just heard all that like um, ordinary, which I'll steal that one. Disappointed, unwanted, unloved, rejected. These are powerful emotions that she's that this situation is creating in her. About three times ago when I taught this, it suddenly struck me I needed to ask a question here. So, rose petals, um, seducing him when he comes home. He's home, you seduce him, you welcome him into your bed. Or, you're lying there in your cozy flannels, he climbs in bed with you, you give him a kiss and go back to sleep. Which of those ladies are you more happy that he's home? <laughs> yeah, okay. Guys, you hear that? For the women, that's the same emotional experience. What the heck? <laughs> right? That is the same emotional experience for her. She is ecstatic that you're home. She's so glad you're home. You're home. Ladies, listen. He's not home yet. At some emotional level. Now, this isn't just about welcoming when he gets home. Again, I don't want to create a sense of like expectation and entitlement for any of the men in the room that, hey, when I get home, there better be rose petals. If you walk away from here with that, then there's a special place in judgment. I mean, that's just <laughs> totally unacceptable. Like, that's not at all. We're trying to learn about each other so we can adapt to the other. Just, if you're already sitting there going, like, how do I get her to put root beer in the fridge? You're not listening to a single thing I've said. <laughs> You need to be thinking, how do I make sure the fridge is stocked with what less is her? Okay, so guys, you need to understand, understanding her perspective. Women, same thing, understanding his perspective. This will revolutionize the way you engage with each other in regards to sexuality because you understand this. Now, so what happens? So he's laying there because an emotion that he has right now is confused because you have to have a reason to not engage sexually, right? You have to have a reason not to. You're a man, typically. They're not... Ergo, there's a reason. And he's got to figure out what the reason is. I didn't call. I should have brought a present. I didn't, I didn't what, what did I do wrong? I must have done something wrong. Maybe she just doesn't feel that way about me anymore. Maybe she has a boyfriend. Maybe she's found, I know the ladies are all chuckling at this. None of the men are. Like, we've, we've had these emotions. Maybe she, I mean, she's just lost that love and feeling, Right? You know, she doesn't close her eyes anymore when I kiss her lips. There's no tenderness like before in her fingertips, right? This is when a man wrote that song. It was right here. I'm not lying that a guy can be up two or three hours under those conditions trying to figure out what went wrong. Going to bed, confused, alone. Now, again, I'm not asking you to feel pity. That's, that's, and, and the problem is we're not trained at that stage usually in marriage. We're not trained well enough to ask about it. We're not trained to talk about it. We're just going to solve it. So at some point, by the way, he'll decide, this is my favorite little part, he'll decide this is just a trick. Like she's waiting until I fall asleep and then she's going to come zipping out of those flannels and, and attack me. <laughs> so he gets hit all still. <laughs> Sorry, guys. You gave away a big secret. Um, okay, so guys, what is, actually, ladies, what's he like the next day? Grouchy. What's that? Distant. Silent. What'd you say? Irritated. Isn't it interesting? Irritable, silent, distant, cold, on edge. 
What he's feeling is confused, but most men aren't trained on how to express negative emotions. Um, the therapist in our office joke, especially the lady therapist joke, that men have two emotions, angry and not angry. <laughs> I'm like, what about hungry? Um, but, and honestly, the truth is men and women have the same emotional repertoire. We just, men are often not trained on how to talk about it. We don't know how to use the language. I've literally sat with an actual brain surgeon in my office with a chart made for children to talk about emotions. I mean, this is a brain surgeon, but he can't use, he has four emotional words. And so I have to be like, how about, let's, let's find something in between those two. Because men aren't, we aren't trained to, to talk that way. So he doesn't know how to say, I'm confused. I'm alone. I, I'm, I'm not understanding. And if he did, she might not know how to do. She'd be like, what's wrong with you? Anyway, she might not be able to deal with that well anyway. She might see that as a, as a play. Because remember, she's been taught from being a teenager that all men care about is sex. And so here, this is, this is going to feed into that. This, this experience. She hoped he was different. So he's grumpy, he's grouchy, he's irritable, he's childish, he's pouting, right? That was, a, that was actually kind of a turning point in our marriage was one night in the middle of the night when I was self-therapizing in my journal about, about the fact that Ginger didn't want to have sex with me that night, I guess. And so I'm, I'm therapizing in there and I look at it and I'm like, I go back and read it and I start laughing because if it was like two red lines with blue, or two blue lines with red dotted lines down the middle, and I was writing in capitals like this, it could not have sounded more like a six-year-old writing. And, and, and I start laughing, and she comes in, she's like, "You're okay? Are you?" You know, finally, he's lost it. Like it's a, and I said, um, "I said, am I pouting?" She was like, "Well, yes." So do I pout about anything else? She says, "No, I can't think of anything else." Like I, I was pouting. That's, all, that's exactly what I was doing. I'd reverted to the five-year-old who was introduced to pornography at age five, like most men my age, somewhere between three and eight. I had this, this hardwiring, and I can immediately turn into a kid when it comes to this, this very insecure, very broken, and I still see that. I can still hear that language in my head at times, and I have to argue with that, but understanding it and, and wrestling through this, like, what's going on here? So what happens is, here's what happens, though. He didn't know how to talk about that. He knows how to express negative emotions. That's why if we bang our head on a cabinet, we don't say, ow, that hurt, would someone give me a hug? We say, who left the freaking cabinet door open? Right? <laughs> we feel his pain when we express his anger. That's just dumb. We should grow up out of that. But, so <clears throat> so instead, instead of expressing anger, we should express what we're really feeling, confusion or pain or whatever, or embarrassment. But we don't. That's not just men. That's all of us. But the, um, uh, So what, what happens here, he, they didn't, they, let's say they have sex later. Or, worst case is, she asks one of her friends who's been married for a while. Man, he's in a really terrible mood today. You have any idea what's going on? He just came home last night. Things seem to be great, but now he's in a terrible mood last night. And what does the, what does the woman who's married for a while say? Well, did you have sex with him? No. Well, that's why he's in bad mood. Right? Because she's been interpreting through this lens all this time. She thinks it's about sex. It's not about sex. It's about what sex means. So he doesn't know how to talk about this. Well, let's say, so then they engage sexually. Now he's fine. Right? Okay, we're okay. It's, it's, okay, it's not, it's not what I feared. We're okay. Who knows what it was? There must have been some reason that she didn't want to have sex last night. I don't know what it is, but she did now. We're, we're fine. But how does she interpret that? Yeah, that's half of it. He had me, and he was grumpy. He has sex, and he's fine. It's about sex. Now, guys, can you see how that makes total sense? If you go into the situation dividing them. Ladies, 
Can you see how that's not at all what he experienced? That's not at all what he experienced. He wasn't home and now he's home. There had to be some reason. Something must be wrong. Now you've convinced him nothing is wrong. We're okay. You see, that's a two totally different experiences. The problem is this pattern creates itself and what ends up happening is she ends up, the next time he goes out of town, she buys something slinky and she seduces him. Why? To avoid the negative emotional consequences of not having sex with him. And something dies in their marriage in regards to sexuality. All of a sudden, sex is about keeping him in a good mood. It's not free. It's, it's, it always comes. And what's wild, here's what's wild. So when you, and we see Christian marriages all the time, that you'll talk about sex, and the wife will say, I'm always glad when we have sex. It's always fun. I'm always glad when we do. It's great. It's, it's, I mean, whatever, right? But, man, I don't know if I want to. I think what happens is that these wives go into the sexual encounter with their husband thinking that this is about sex. What they end up experiencing with him is that this is about me because, by the way, for him, this is about you. We don't divide it out that way. I encourage couples to get all impersonal pronouns out of their language when it comes to sexuality. Not it, not some, not any, not a piece, not that. We don't talk that way. Stay, keep away from that. We've been trained to talk that way by our culture because our culture is evil and affected by the hierarchy of hell. We've been trained to think that way and to talk that way. Sex is not about a thing. It's about a person. It's about a person I've covenanted with for the rest of my life. In fact, as in the middle of understanding, this actually would help me understand exactly when this was, because Mark was about nine, because I took Mark on a, on a trip, and I was reading this and trying to understand some of this stuff and, and grow in this. And so, so this would be about ten years ago now, when we were coming, uh, we were really solving and changing the things in our marriage. Some of these things, very same things had had developed bad habits. There were ways that I was communicating to Ginger that it was about sex, not about her, and I had no idea that it was communicating that. No clue, because I, I didn't think of it that way. I didn't divide it out like that. But if you start with that division, all of a sudden it makes sense. I'm going to show you the pop quiz here in a second to help you see this. But So here's what, here's what began to happen. Um, what happened was I came home after uh, taking him on a canoe trip, and I was being real flirty and, and all that kind of stuff. And she made some reference like, oh, I figured you'd be wanting some later. Just teasing. And I said, no. I'm a grown man. I can get some wherever I want. What I waited for all week was you. I don't want some. What I want is you. You're who I waited for. Well, that change in language, that that doesn't sound the same, does it? To go, this isn't about, this isn't about, I realize this isn't about sex for me. This is about you. Sex is just my favorite way to have you, it's the most powerful way I know to have you. It's, this is about, turns out what men want is to be freely chosen by a woman who wants to be freely chosen by him. That's the power. That's the naked and unashamed. That's the reclaiming of the garden. Um, Ginger kind of coined it when she was reading a book called Hava. And it's the story of Eve, the story of the garden from the perspective of Eve. That's obviously totally fictional. But it's a really cool picture of what sex would have been like for Eve in the garden of just, just the free, fun, whatever of, of sexuality before the fall. It's this picture of reclaim, And that's, I think, what marriages can be is, is in a similar way reclaiming the garden. I think it's part of what God intended for marriage is to, 
Sex is meant to be that binding, that glue that he referenced way back in Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And all throughout Scripture, that joining is clearly a euphemism for sex. So the Apostle Paul later warns about, don't join yourself to a prostitute. Don't unite yourself. That's, that's the idea that's being talked about here. Is it a bad thing that a man wants to be united to his wife this way? Of course not. But we've turned that into a bad thing because it seems to most women like what we're trying to do is get sex from you. It's how do I get more sex from my wife? And so many marriage seminars and so many teaching and that kind of stuff and books back that view rather than, rather than fight against it. Rather than say, no, it's not. Men don't, we, as men, we don't think of it that way. I'm telling you, if I could put, if I could put mind readers on people's heads... I'm convinced that if I, I, I was speaking in front of a mops group or whatever, and I had a man and a woman come on stage and had the man stand behind his wife and reach around and hold her breasts, and I said, what is he holding? The men's brains would automatically say, his wife. And the women's brains would say, breasts. It is intuitive for women to divide up their own sexuality from their identity that way. Um, sometimes I, I will say women... I think, I think women, because you've been trained to think intuitively this way, that men wake up in the morning and we go like, I want to touch some breasts today. <laughs> Where could I find some breasts? <gasps> My wife has breasts. <laughs> that is not how we think. We don't, well, that would require some intentional strategizing about it. It, when, when a husband touches his wife sexually, it's because she's his wife. And he doesn't have a reason not to, so of course he does. He doesn't need a reason to engage sexually. He would need a reason not to engage sexually. But guys, understand, your wives are going to need a reason to engage sexually, and it's going to cost them some psychological points. That doesn't mean she doesn't like you. It doesn't mean she doesn't like sex. It doesn't mean she doesn't whatever. Now listen, there could be all types of other issues mixed into here. You may not be very good at having sex with your wife. I mean, the main power of sex between a husband and a wife, here, here's a huge surprise. It involves sacrifice. Even the anatomy doesn't line up correctly. That's just the way that it works. Like when it comes to the pleasure and orgasm and stuff like that, like it doesn't work the way that most people think that it's going to work. We've been misled by the media. You have to communicate with each other. She has to walk you on that island, and you've got to walk her upon that part of your island. The intimacy and knowing each other, that's part of it. Is you got to be able to do, and if you're not able to because of past trauma or whatever, then you may need to get therapy to help deal with that, and to learn to do those, have those conversations. But, but understand, this is a that, that may be part of it. There's certainly, if you've been married very long, there's certainly going to be hurt feelings and resentments. And if this pattern has been the pattern, like it was for us at some point, where I think I'm being a blessing to her, but what I'm doing is convincing her that this is about sex, not about me. It's fascinating to go back and even look at some of the things that we wrote back then and that kind of stuff, how you could tell I'm trying to communicate to her. But this is, this is about, a lot of times it was the, um, okay, I'll pay you $50,000. Okay, I'll pay you $100,000, right? This is, a, psychologically speaking, like metaphorically, this is not literally. The, the idea of going, this is what it's worth. It's this special to me. And her going, I still don't have the 20. <laughs> right? But we were talking past each other entirely. 
So this is why when we as men, if we can, if we, that's why, you know, sex starts in the kitchen. If you do the dishes and you set aside, help her allocate, take something off her plate, then maybe later, if she wants to engage sexually, she can without going into debt. Okay, ready for the pop quiz? And I'll open up for questions. Here's the pop quiz. Bad day. You've been on each other's nerves all day. Been picking and nipping and biting all day. It's been one little mini conflict followed by a big conflict followed by mini all day. At the end of that day, he says, so you don't mess around? <laughs> okay? Guys, anybody want to take a stab at interpreting that? When she gives you the look that says, are you from another planet? <laughs> She cusses you out. What is she? Why? Do you now know why? May want to try? Interpret it for me. I don't like her. You don't even like me, right? You've been, all, you've been on my nerves all day. You don't even like me. You've been mean to me all day. But you want to mess around. So what does that prove? It's about sex, right? Good. Ladies, can one of you interpret it? Why on earth? Would at the end of that kind of a day, he think that it would be a rational, sane thing to say, would you like to mess around? What's that? Make sure you're all good. Okay. What else? Okay. So this is fun. I did this in premarital counseling a few weeks ago for a couple who I, I, I then married. <coughs> and I asked this question. I said, how is she going to respond to that? After all this teaching, I tell the young man. I said, how is she going to respond to that? How's she going to feel about that? And he goes, I assume she'll be happy. <laughs> That's exactly what his wife did. His wife, or his future wife. His wife in two weeks was like, oh my gosh, what? <laughs> I was like, okay, okay. I was like, okay, stop. As I looked at her in the eye, and I was like, I want you to notice that in good faith, he legitimately thinks that would be a positive thing for you. Understand that. He really thinks that. Right? And I'm like, she's like, wow. Like, yes, I'm telling you. This is a... So this is... How about this? It, what is he saying? What he does, he's saying, I know it's been a really awful day. I know we've been on your deserves all day. But I want you to know something. I still choose you. And you're still who I want to choose me. Even though it's been a nightmare day... Nothing's changed really. You are still who I choose and you're still who I want. And I still want to be the person you want. Now ladies, if he said that, that wouldn't be so bad, would it? If he said, I just want you to know something at the end of the day. I know it's been a terrible day, but you need to know something. I choose you. That's what he thinks he just said. <laughs> I'm not kidding. He thinks he just said. So I've said before, like, you know, if you got to... Anybody got an eight-year-old son or have had an eight-year-old son? Okay, so your eight-year-old son shows up on Mother's Day with Legos. Hey, Mom, I got you some Legos. Do you say, what are you, stupid? <laughs> you like Legos. I don't like Legos. You like Legos. <laughs> did you do that? No, why not? Why did he give you Legos? Because it's the best gift he knows how to give. The best gift anyone can receive is Legos. He knows that. He wants
wants you to have the best gift anyone can receive, so he gives you Legos. Now, I don't, I, I'm careful about this because I don't want to equate this. The, the fact that the, the man wants to engage with you sexually as an expression of choosing and being chosen by you is not childish. It is straight from the garden. Cool thing. I actually think men are right in this one, which is a rare thing. <laughs> I, think the, I think in the garden, men's sexuality, human sexuality and identity was integrated. I think the fall has had less sexual consequences on us as men, as victims, so we still can integrate them. We wouldn't know how to not integrate them. That's what's wild. Um, for a while, so when I did therapy in Fort Worth, and when you help people in a big city, they send their friends, and their friends all work with them. In big cities, you, you're friends with people you work with. Um, in small, smaller towns like Tyler, you can be friends with anybody. But in, in bigger cities, you're friends with people you work with. Well, I helped a lady who was a stripper get out of the stripping industry as part of the therapy. She started seeing her friends were all strippers. So there was a time when about, I don't know, a fifth of my clients were strippers, male and female. And what's wild is I had one of the women say one time, like, she said, I want to challenge you something. Start asking all the strippers, all the ladies, who is the most successful stripper? I was like, all right, I'll ask. It's a great education. Turns out, I, I, would have had, I would have been totally wrong. All of them knew, though. It was the one who could make the most men in the room think the reason she's on stage tonight is because she thought he might be here. Even in the most deluded, broken, foolish, wicked expressions of sexuality, the men are trying to make a connection. That's what they think is happening. Now, is that... Is that ridiculous? Yes. Is it delusional? Yes. But that's what they're trying to do is to create a connection. The men in the room think they're having a connection with the woman on the stage. By the way, they are. She hates your guts. All of them I talk to. They see it as a con. You're, you're an idiot. You come and I give you nothing and you give me thousands of dollars. That's how she sees it. Because she has no identity. Her identity is... There's nothing about me. All there is is sex, and it's worthless. So I'll happily give it to you because it doesn't mean anything. It has nothing to do with me. She divides them out, and it's so broken that that's how that happens. I'm giving you nothing, and you're giving me money. That seems like a good deal. That's how they all seem to see it. But notice that even under those conditions, the men think they're making a connection because for men, sexuality is about that connection. That's what it's about. We couldn't divide it if we wanted to. So understand, when he pursues you sexually, he thinks he's pursuing you. He, he doesn't divide them out. And do I want sex with her or do I just want her? That's never crossed his mind. It's, it's never, he'd have to intentionally be thinking that way. Now men, it's time to start intentionally thinking that way. Because we need to understand that when we engage with our wives sexually, we're communicating something to her. And if we're not careful, we're communicating something we don't mean to. We're doing things like at the end of a day of fighting, we're going like, hey, do you want to mess around? Which communicates loud and clear to her, this is about sex. You know, like me, you just want sex. When you, when you spend all of your time away from her or apart from her, and then you come home and you want to have sex, well, that makes total sense to us. Hey, I've not gotten to see you in a while. Let's reconnect. And the most powerful way that there is to reconnect, let's reconnect. Of course that makes sense to us as guys. Understand to her... What she sees is, you're hurrying home for sex. That's how she's going to interpret that. When, when, you, when you, the only times you're affectionate with her is in an effort to have sex with her, that's going to communicate that to her. 
say this is only about sex. Now for you it's, well all affection is sexual and at the same time kind of not sexual. It's like, it's not divided out that way. We don't think in those terms. That's, we have to learn to do that. When we, when we say the language, hey, are we going to do it later? Was it it? What if you say, I would like to have you later in this way? Or when she says, nah, no thanks, I'm not interested in engaging sexually. Do you say, well, then I'll go find something else to do. Or worse, I'll go find another way to be sexual. That communicates to her that sex is irreplaceable and she's replaceable. But if she says, no, I don't feel like messing around, if you go, well, then what would you like to do? Here's what's wild. Because of the way women's heart seems to be made, it's amazing how often if a woman says some version of, I don't feel like messing around, or I don't think I'm up for it, or I don't have enough energy, or whatever, and her husband chooses her in the midst of that, without choosing sex, that even though in his mind he is disappointed, and he feels alone, and he feels not home, and he feels rejected, that if he can say like, but I know that's not the truth. That's not what she's trying to communicate to me. That's not what she means. So there's a good chance for me to communicate to her loud and clear. This is about you, not about sex. So what would you like to do? What you'll be amazed by is how often that type of evening may end up naked and unashamed. Because when you inspire in her the truth that this is about you, it's not about sex, very often, for her, sex then becomes a behavioral option that sounds fun. Sounds like it'd be a good thing to do. That'd be fun. Even if it's just a gift. And by the way, just a gift. Grace is pretty awesome. So this, this is the idea of sexuality. And I wanted to read to, to uh, both of us and for, as, for the ladies to recognize. It's good to communicate about that. It's good to say, oh, you have no idea how much I would love to mess around right now, but I, I am just at zero. I don't think I can. And again, intuitively, guys, we're not going to get that. We don't have to. We can accept her saying it. Well, then what would be an encouragement to you? What would be a blessing to you? What would you like to do? What would be... And we can take things off of her plate. So in the same way that if you want him to, you know, to paint the eaves, you're going to have to take something else off of his plate so he can have the energy and time to paint. Well, if you say, hey, what can I be taking care of? You know what? I'll do bath time with the kids. That was always my thing, was bath time. Yeah, I was king of bath. And a lot of times mornings. You go, you know what? I'm going to take the kids in the morning. And then there's time, and then there's energy that each of you might have to be able to invest. And this isn't like, hey, I'm going to buy sex by taking care of the kids in the morning. Again, a lot of the ladies want, are going to want to interpret my, me saying it that way. That's, that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm doing a gift and a blessing for her because I have the opportunity and the ability to do it. And I, it leaves maybe some margin on the table for her. And then if she feels like messing around that way, she could without going into debt because I don't want her going into debt. Realizing that we were communicating to each other very powerfully, I don't want you. And the realization that neither of us intended to do that was, was shocking. And we had to go back and kind of start stuff over, which, by the way, I fully accept, at least at the beginning, was my job. I had to re, I had to change the, the nature and culture of our marriage in regards to that. So I want to encourage you with that, guys, to begin to see that differently, understanding this difference. All right, good. What questions do you have? Yes, sir. Yes, there is. How does it take some of that and even some of the 
I'll try to do some. One is, and by the way, I highly recommend when it comes to the sexual expression and laws, especially of the Old Testament, um, Copen, Paul Copen, I think, is God a Moral Monster, is a fantastic read. Um, the rejuification of, of Christianity has been super awesome. Us understanding that Jesus was not a Roman Greek, he was a Jew, has been super helpful. I'm, I'm sure you're learning about that too. It's why Israel trips are becoming popular again. It's why, because, because we're learning, we're realizing, if you don't understand Jesus as a Jew, so for, for 1750s, 1800 years, Jesus was taught through the church as a Roman Greek, as a Hellenist, which may cause us to really confuse a lot of his teaching. And the same thing is true of Old Testament passages. So the Old Testament, what's fascinating is, and if you read Copeland's book, you'll see this, is that Moses, the law of Moses was for its time shockingly progressive. Nothing comes even close. Protections for women and crimes against women are so, they are more progressive than some of ours in the United States are. Um, rape is a huge problem in the United States. Sexual assault is a huge problem in the United States. Huge and, the, and the, the average people who get caught with this and even convicted of this, the average, at least a few years ago, was less than three years penalty in, in prison as an average for, for, for conviction of rape. What was the conviction for rape in the Old Testament? If you got busted, if you, if you raped somebody and you got convicted, of, and by the way, convicted meant a woman claimed it, and if she was in the city, all she had to do was cry out. If she was being sexually assaulted and she cried out, and she later said, I cried out and there are witnesses of that, and you assaulted her, what was the penalty? Death. In fact, and who was going to care? There was no police. Who was going to carry out the penalty? Her family. Her father and her brothers were going to hunt you down. She comes home and says, Hey, this guy raped me. You better be on your way to a sanctuary city because if her brothers or father catches you, they're going to kill you. And if you get to the sanctuary city and you go in and then you make your claim, no, no, I didn't. Here's the situation. We were out in the woods and it was consensual. They're going to say, does she say it's rape? Yes, she says it's rape. And you were not in the city limits? Right. They were kicking you out so her family can kill you. Her word was assumed to be true in the woods because even if she did cry out, no one could hear her. In the city, she, all the women knew the rule. You get assaulted, you cry out, people are going to come running. It was, that, it was very simple, very cut and dry. If you don't cry out, then we're going to assume it was consensual. So if it's not, make sure you cry out. And everyone knew that was the rule. It was very clear, cut and dry, every time. It was much more protective. So it's, anyway, just as a side note, very progressive. There are some weird, obviously there are weird expressions of sexuality. But even when you look at like, I don't know, Tamar, the, the story of David's, some of David's children and the incest that happened there, for example, you still see this effort to create a connection. He falls in love with her and thinks, I can, this, this will convince her, right? I'll have sex with her and that will convince her. That whole, that whole situation, there's a lot of broken expressions like that. Or one of my favorites is the, um, the fact that God allows for the Leverite marriages. Um, this, so if, if the, the way that we, we see it in the book of Ruth, which is some of my favorite things to teach, but in the book of Ruth. So like in the book of Ruth, the way the, the, way the marriage worked was, so if, if I died and I had no sons, then my brother was supposed to marry Ginger. And if he said no, then the next closest relative was supposed to marry her. And if he said no, the next closest relative was supposed to marry her. This was a law put into place because the people of Israel weren't taking care of their widows. So God created a law to, to require the protection of them. 
But the problem was it created a condition under which a man could be married to more than one woman. By law, could be married to more than one woman. Because if it came all the way back around to my brother and he was already married and no one else wanted to marry her, he had to marry her. So that's where you get the story of Onan. Onan who has two wives. But see, the job of the new husband is to give her a son. And the minute she has a son, she is now to be taken care of by that son. So what happened is all of my property would go to my brother. He would get all my money, all my land, all my resources, all of everything. But the minute she gave birth to a son, that son was then my child legally, and all of that inheritance went to him, under her control probably. But all that inheritance went to him. Onan did not want to lose his brother's inheritance, so he refused to impregnate his wife. That's not a story about masturbation. That's a story about the disobedience against God. So that's why he gets struck dead. Um, it's because he disobeys God directly. He's supposed to be giving this woman a son, but he doesn't want to lose the resources. There's a lot of that kind of stuff, but even when we see, even these Old Testament ones, so many of them are, are like shorthanded, or the most jacked up versions like a prostitute, a... a, a um, well, you have the fascinating um, the laws about marriage where you have peer wives and you have concubine wives. The word, for the Jewish people, the word concubine is used interchangeably with wife. It's just a wife that has less legal recourse than another wife. Um, and so you see regularly they'll use interchangeably the word wife and concubine. So clearly they saw this as a, a concubine wasn't just a sex slave. A concubine for the Jewish people was a type of wife, um, a servant wife or a slave wife. Um, and so she still had certain rights and obligations. Now you get, so you get these weird stories where you have like, you know, Lot trying to put his daughters out um, for people to rape them rather than raping the men. I'll explain that one in a second. Or the one of the, the men of um, Benjamin coming and raping the prophet's concubine to death. Uh, by the way, what happens to the tribe of, it was Benjamin, wasn't it? What happens to the tribe of Benjamin after that event? I know. The entire rest of the nation of Israel goes to war against them and slaughters them almost to a man. That's how offensive them raping a concubine was. That the, the rest of Israel went to war against them and nearly wiped them out. And so it's, it's not, the sexual crimes are taken seriously in the Old Testament even when you see them. But I think what you have, when you have, you just have a jacked up humanity. And so we see these type of stories where, like in Lot's case in Sodom and Gomorrah, hospitality was the ultimate law. And so you have these two men who show up, and they're here to take, the three of them show up for Abraham. Abraham shows them perfect hospitality, over the top. It's what we teach every time we teach hospitality to the church, um, is Abraham's hospitality. He makes something like 36 loaves of bread for these three men. I mean, he tells them, let me just get you a tiny bit of water and a little morsel. I'll be right back. And then he goes and has a calf killed. He has nine ephahs of flour, a fine flour turned into bread. He is the perfect Middle Eastern Bedouin host. Perfect. Over the top. He is, he's a Bedouin warlord. He's a mafia king. He's so powerful that he defeated five cities with just his men. He's a Bedouin warlord. That's how we should picture him. The huge flowing robes with swords and weapons and all of and hundreds of men who, who are at his beck and call covering the desert. Like they have a bad picture of Abraham sometimes. He's probably an awesome, bad to the bone dude. So uh, that's, that's what's so he, But he is a servant immediately to three total strangers who show up because that's what that's the culture still to this day in the Middle East. How do I, how do I serve you? We run to serve. How do I serve you? I am your servant. 
The angels, the two, they then leave, I think, Jesus there with Abraham, and they go to Sodom and Gomorrah. They're doing research. Should Sodom and Gomorrah be destroyed? I've always managed them with a clipboard. A list of sins. What do we see in here? What do we? But what happens is, so they go. They're going to sleep in the city square, which, by the way, in that culture means someone is going to come out and say, "No, no, no! You don't sleep in the city square. Come to my home. I'm going to take care of you. You're, you can stay as long as you want." And they mean that. To this day, they do it that way. Um, now, there's a whole bunch of stuff I could go into that's really fun, but I'm not going to. But this, so they, that's what that goes on, right? But instead, what happens is Lot comes out and is like, "No, no, 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 no! no. Get out of the city squares. Come, let, I will come." I'll take care of you. If this isn't just hospitality, this is raw fear. Lot's like, no, you can't stay in the city squares. You must come inside. They come inside, and immediately the crowd show up to rape these two men. In the prophets later, when it is explained why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, you might know what, what the sin is that they are convicted of and destroyed for? The lack of hospitality. Now, there's no doubt that all the sexual sin and stuff was part of it. That's why the angels were there. But I've always pictured the angels standing in front of Lot, and they're banging on the door, and they're going, like, why are they banging on the door? Well, they want me to throw you out so they can rape you. And the, the two angels of the Lord looking at each other and looking at their clipboard going, I don't think we need these. Right? So Lot, in an effort to protect the men who are under the protection of his roof, and he knows he has no power to protect them physically, but he has to protect them. They are his guests to the point of death. Any of you read them as a lone survivor? Where the guy still to the, when he gets picked up in a Muslim city and the Muslims are willing to die to protect an American soldier because he's a guest in their community. And they have no choice but to fight to the point of death to defend him because he's a guest. That is still the motif now. There's much more then. How do I, how do I protect these two men from being raped? Lot goes to the only solution he has that he can think of. Take my daughters instead. Now, is that awful and ridiculous and evil and wicked? Of course it is. These were possessed people. They were so evil at that point that there was just nothing positive. So I think that's what's going on, for example, in that situation. Is This is just the, the level of evil and oppression. I don't even know if that was about sex. That was about just death and destruction. But that's all Lot can think to do. Otherwise, they're going to break in, and they're going to get all of them. And so the only way he can protect his two guests is to send out his daughters. Now, it turns out the guests don't need any protection because of who they are, um, which, you know, moral of the story, if angels show up in your town, don't, don't do that. That's bad. Um, so I think, is that the kind of, I think each one of them has their own, its own way of, did you have one in particular in mind, Trent? Yeah. That kind of thing. I just, you know, I was the idea that you were sitting. Yeah. You know, I studied Deuteronomy 21. The reality yeah. is. How does this line up with. Which one is Deuteronomy 21? It's the one where uh, God tells them you go in and you conquer a people group. Yeah. And you take women. Yeah, yeah. Strip their clothes off, shave their head. Right. And, and pair their nails. And pair their nails. Right, right. And rip them of their identity. Right. Then in a month, you can assault them. Okay, now listen. This is what's cool. Right. Okay, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So here's what's wild. In its culture, that was a radically progressive law to protect women. Because what happened is, notice, they are not allowed to rape and pillage. 
what they're doing, they go into a town and conquer the city. They have to wait a month before laying a hand on a woman who they capture. They can't, they can't lay a hand on her for a month. So this foreign woman who doesn't speak the language, probably, who doesn't know your people, you're going to bring her into your house. You're going to strip her of her identity, which would be what? What would be her identity? Her family. A Baal worshiper. So you have stripped her of her identity as a Baal worshiper because fundamentally, no matter what town she's from, what matters to God is that she's a Baal worshiper. So you have to strip her of that identity. And then she's, as a Baal worshiper, to come into your home. You have to feed her, take care of her, all of that, heal her for a month, and you can't touch her for a month. That is not how, that's not how war happens now. How war happens now is that soldiers go in and they kill the men and they rape the women and they kill the women. That's how, that, that happens still in most, much of the world today, certainly throughout most of history. Now imagine a law in which the male soldiers are told when you take a city, if you touch a woman during the battle, you will be executed. So though it's shocking by our standards, in its day, that was a progressive law that is beyond anything that anyone could have comprehended. It's, it's, it's stunning to think that God would have put that type of protection on foreign women. And then, when she's done, when, if he decides not to take her, or, or whatever, he can't sell her because she's not property. She, he doesn't own her. She's not a slave. If he takes her, what is she? A wife. He has to take her as a wife with the protection and property of, of, of being a wife, not being a slave. And so God creates a system where I have to treat this woman with restraint and respect for a month, and then if I decide after that month I do want to keep her around, I have to marry the woman. She's not a sex slave for me. I'll be breaking God's law. If I don't marry her, I have to set her free. Now, again, is all of that awful? Yes. But when you understand the context of how it's being played out, it's a stunning break from the way things were done then and in most of the world now. I mean, it actually was a huge protection for women at the time. Which, by the way, would have meant that most of the time, they didn't take them. I mean, what would have been the point, right? You can't just get into a bloodlust and start raping people. You have to wait, which probably meant most of the time, they just ignored the women. Unless God specifically commanded them to kill everybody, and even then, that was probably in fortified areas, not the whole city, just in the fortified areas. But you have to remember, this is a, this is a culture. The Baal worship culture was such an evil culture. Um, any, any of you been to Israel? Anybody go to the Megiddo? You went to Megiddo. In Megiddo, they dug up a 4,000-year-old altar, a big stone circle, about, what, about this tall, about four feet tall. Pretty sure that there's how they worshipped Baal at that time. Is that in the middle of the in the middle, so you'd have had steps going up to this, and this would have been all of fire, a big flame, a big fire. In the middle would have been a statue of Baal, a bronze statue standing like this of Baal. So Baal was the god of rain and fertility, among other things. Um, and so what you had to do in the Middle Eastern world at that time, rain was considered to be the sperm of Baal. It's what brought life. So it rained and things grew. So this was the ejaculation of, of Baal. So what you had to do is get Baal turned on to the point where he would either engage with his consort, Asherah, or get Asherah turned on enough so she would seduce Baal so that he would then ejaculate and then that would bring rain to the land. 
That's actually what they believe. So how do you get Baal turned on? Well, one is you try to get his, his consort Ashra turned on by having giant phalluses on hilltops, giant penises on hilltops. That's When it says an Asherah pole, that's what it means. 10 feet tall, 20 feet tall, 40 foot tall, giant statues on hilltops. Those were meant to get Asherah in the mood so that she would seduce Baal. Okay? Um, so then you have, um, or you get Baal turned on and he seduces. Well, here's what turns Baal on. What you do is you, you heat the statue till it's white hot. And then you go into the audience, you have a woman give you her infant child. And you go up on the stage and you set the infant child alive in the hot, white hot bronze hands. And the screams of that baby is what turned Baal on to the point where he would want to make it rain. That's Baal worship. You see why God wanted this wiped out, eradicated? The level of evil is stunning when you go back and see how the worship, the worship practices of that day. They had other Baal statues that were big round Baal statues, kilns, that had shelves, six or eight shelves. The shelves were where you put the babies to then cook them in the kiln alive. So understand, that's, I had a friend who was a martial artist who was a nominal Christian, and he was really troubled by this. I used to go to a Renaissance fair and answer questions on Sunday mornings. Let me tell you. You can ask me questions. And he was like, I hate the fact that God wanted the people of Israel to wipe out these other people sometimes. Like, I just think that's wrong. That's genocide. It's evil. Whatever. He's like, well, let me tell you about the culture that he's having wiped out. And I, I told that story, and I got done, and he was like, yeah, wipe them out. <laughs> I, I'm glad they're dead. Like, I don't want any of them around. And I understand God's playing the big game. You know, God could, God could and possibly did rescue many of those women and children for eternity. That's God's prerogative. God can have mercy upon whom he has mercy. He condemns whom he condemns. I have no reason to think that God would not have had mercy on these ignorant, backwards people who had been brought up with, with no other way of engaging with things. But in the meanwhile, crushing this worship. That's God's prerogative. Um, of course he did. So I think that's, that's what you're dealing with, like in Deuteronomy 21. From our perspective, we go, wow, this sounds terrible. Um, I don't have time to go into it, but I have an article on the website, for example, about the cleanly, some of the cleanliness laws. Which to us, you go like, a woman is unclean during her period? Like, that sounds awful. Unclean didn't mean sinful or bad. It meant set apart. And so when you understand how that played out, it's one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible, the way that plays out. So good, good question. You would love Copen's book. You ought to get, Is God a Moral Monster? Um, great book. Great research. Yes, sir. Right. 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 Yeah. So the, the question is, why didn't God just go ahead and completely fix it then? Why did he not create laws that look like our laws today versus laws then? I think there's two issues with that. One is it's ethnocentric and says that our laws today are right. The leading cause of death this year in the world, anybody? Abortion. We have aborted 50 million babies this year. It is the, leading, it is the least safe place to be in the world is in a woman's womb today. So for us to judge the laws back then, I think sometimes it's just arrogant. To, to think we understand it better than, they, than God did back then, I think sometimes is arrogant. 
I understand the concern and I agree. It does seem weird that God would not have, for example, ended slavery when he was on earth. Why didn't Jesus end slavery? Why didn't he end world hunger? Why didn't he end poverty? He could have ended any of these things at any point. I think part of it is that God's intention... So, for example, when, when Joshua... I'll use this picture. When Joshua um, fails at Ai because of the sin of Achan in Jericho, okay? So God comes to, to, comes to... They go to Ai. They get defeated 36 body bags later. And Joshua's falling on his face before God going, why did you allow this to happen? And God says, first, get up, right? Joshua goes and is whining. This doesn't mention Egypt, but he does mention the other side of the Jordan. Um, God says, get up. They're sent in the camp. Deal with it. Notice that God doesn't tell Joshua, it's Achan. He says, you go cast lots until you find who it is tomorrow. Now, God could have just told him, it's Achan. But I think the problem is, God sees the issues and the frailties, like Jesus said, you're always going to have the poor with you. Some of the frailties and the sufferings and the challenges that we face as a human race is part of his redemptive power. We're not supposed to feel at home here. We're supposed to feel disappointed here all the time. So I think there is something to saying God has revealed over time, and in its day, it may be that that was the best moral law possible within the people who existed at that time, unless God was just going to wipe out the human race and start over again. Or unless God was just going to reach into everybody's brain and tweak the amygdala so that it was something totally different. Like, the, the level of how much should God change under any given condition, it's hard for us, it always is. Human suffering and challenges are never, we're never going to have a satisfactory answer for that here. Beyond this, God promises a redemption of all of it. That's, that's where our hope ends up being. So I, I've a, I had a debate last year. I spent two or three different times debating with an atheist on podcasts and online and even had him come to our church <clears throat> a few times. And one of the things that, that in this part of this conversation, because this usually comes up as part of the conversation, um, was this. Um, the problem of human suffering, the problem of Old Testament history and that kind of stuff. The, the question is, I have an answer that says, I believe God has redemption in mind. God may not explain to us why he allowed certain things or why he caused certain things or whatever. He's not under any obligation to do so. But what he tells us is he's got it. There's a reason. He's handling it. He's the only one with the perspective to understand this. We want to armchair quarterback him like Job does. Like, why would you allow this? And God's, you remember when, um, see, this is, so part of this is intuitive to me. I grew up with professors. So it's very intuitive for me to accept that they're experts in the world. Like, that's very easy for me. I grew up with a dad who, you know, you go on a nature walk, and, uh, and, he's, and, and some of my dad would say, and this is a certain pine tree. And some, some poor brain-dead redneck in the back would be like, I think that's an oak tree. And, it, and I'd be there and I'd be like, don't, no. Like, yep, let's sit down. 50-minute lecture coming. Um, don't, don't disagree. I promise you, he, you're wrong. If Dr. Legg says it's a tree, it says a certain type of tree, I promise you it's that kind of tree, 100% sure. I grew up around, again, when you grew up in academia around professors, they do that. My dad knew more about bugs than anyone ever knows about bugs. But if I brought a bug to my dad, he would send me down the hall to Dr. Colhavy, who was an entomologist, who only knew one one millionth of a percent more than my dad did about bugs. But in the academic world, he's the expert, I'm not. That's how academia works. When Job faces down, when God and Job go toe-to-toe about human suffering, in the end, God says, do you understand these basics? Like, do you know how to spin stars? Do you know how to make it snow? Do you understand the, the weather patterns and weather systems? Can you do the easy things like hook a Leviathan? No? Do you 
perspective, so what's your education experience, Job? Were you, were you around when the earth was created? No. Um, were you around when I did this and this? No. Okay, so this is going to be tough, Job. It's kind of like, um, remember when there was the oil spill off the coast and everybody had a solution for the oil spill? Remember that? You all had solutions for the oil spill. You can admit it. Kevin Costner had an addition. Remember, he came on the news. Like, here's how we ought to deal with it. Anyway, I was always like, right, that's Dances Wills would have given you the expertise you needed to. <laughs> but that was my, I mean, I was like, why don't they just drop a big concrete house on the top of it? It seems like just giant concrete house, not hard. Like a big, huge concrete cube, you just drop it on top of the oil well. Like, how's this hard? Well, imagine if I sat down with someone who was a paleo, under oceanographic, I don't even know what the job title would be. Like, they've got, they know that, that they're petroleum engineer of that type, right? And you sit down with one of them and he goes, um, what do you know about barometric pressure? What do you know about pressure under the ocean? Like, mm, no, I don't have to stop for five minutes on my dive when I come up. That's what I, okay, so what do you know about pressures a mile down? Yeah, I got, I got nothing. I don't think about pressure's mile down. What do you know about hitting a target one foot wide a mile down in the ocean? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. What do you know about the pressure that the Earth's crust is doing on the oil that's being pushed? Like, oh, it does that. Oh, that's okay. That's, that's cool. I didn't know. At some point, my friend would say, either you, you can trust me, it won't work. Or I can try to spend the next 10 years getting you the education you need for you to be able to go, oh, that won't work. When it comes to human suffering, God never offers us a more satisfactory answer than, you're going to have to trust me. I know what I'm doing. And that's going to apply to the laws too. Now that's not very satisfactory, and it's certainly not emotionally very satisfactory, but understand that what's the other option? This is what I asked my friend David Smalley, his name, when I asked my friend David Smalley on stage. I said, so you and I agree that there's awful, rank, horrible human suffering throughout all of history, throughout the Old Testament, throughout all of human history, even up till this day. I mean, there's stuff going on today that are so awful as a therapist, I mean, as therapists, we hear the worst story. Unbelievable nightmare stories of abuse and addiction and just, it's just awful, evil stuff going on left and right all the time. And so I'm not ignorant of the fact that there's suffering and evil. Um, so here's my answer. My answer is that I believe God will redeem that. I believe that in the end, He will work it out in such a way that we will someday hopefully be able to see, like, oh, that's why that needed to happen that way. David, the atheist, what's your answer? You have exactly the same sufferings in the world that I do. You have exactly the same evil in the world that I do. What do you have to offer? Nothing? Nothing. So David, then why did you have a child? You know this place is hell? This is a concentration camp? And you brought children into it? with nothing to tell them. Nothing. You got nothing. Hey, this will be redeemed someday. You don't even get to tell them that and you had children? That is the ultimate evil. You say this is such an awful place and yet you had children and you have no hope for them. That's terrible. I had children because I would tell them there's hope. There's reason and there's redemption. I don't understand it. I don't even appreciate it. And sometimes I'm really ticked off at God about what He allows but I trust that he knows what he's doing. He's the expert. I'm not. I don't like it, but I'm used to it. It's children are child of professors. It's, more, it's easier for me intuitively than some. I know that's awful, 
But that's what, those are good questions. Why would God allow these things? At some level, He's the only one with the expertise, experience, and power and perspective to make these calls. And so we can second guess him. He seems to even be okay with that to a certain degree. Why would you do this, God? But in the end, we have to come back to going like, in the end, you're God. I'm not. I trust you know what you're doing. That's really tough. So anyway, now back to the marriage conclusion here. That's good. Those are good questions. And here's what's interesting. Any, any audience, they have that question. Your friends all have that question. You have that question, whether you've ever dealt with it or not. There's a lot more to do. Good news is there's about 4 billion pages of books written on these questions that you can read. If you really want to know about this stuff, there's tons out there. Um, so, with that in mind, here's what I want you to hear. <clears throat> Moving forward, we have the potential to create marriages that are actually living out the vision that God has for marriage, a living parable of His love for His people. That's the vision. We get to get on board with that. And we can sacrifice for each other in every way, including, by the way, in the bedroom. So I want to pray God's blessings over all of us. These are different resources. You can get in touch with me through those. Um, at Aletheia, you can get in touch with Josh there as well. Um, this, is, this is all stuff Josh could have taught too. Um, and so he's got a lot of the same background that I do and learning these things um, as we've gone through. So really want to encourage you guys with that. So thank you. Let me pray. Father, you are a God who redeems. Um, whether that's stuff we don't understand whether that's stuff out of the deep Old Testament that just confuses the fire out of us, whether it's the evil and suffering we see around us today <coughs> that makes us mad and, and confuses us, rightfully so. God, why you don't step in? When are you going to step in? How do you step in? All those different things, Lord, those are above our pay grade and we know it. But we still come to you as your sons and your daughters boldly and we ask questions and we want to learn and we want to grow. Father, I pray you'll be patient with us as we do. Father, I pray that these marriages represented here in this room would become living parables. Well, they are a living parable of your love for your people. Would become good examples of a living parable of your love for your people more and more all the time. If they're great, that they keep growing in greatness. If they're awful, that they begin to grow into the type of life that you offer. Now, do you offer abundant life if we follow you? Thank you, Lord, that the evidence is that when we follow you, when we take you seriously, when we do things your way, when we walk according to the calling with which we've been given, if we live as citizens of heaven, Lord, that it does begin to change us and affect us and affect the lives around us. And Lord, I pray for the blessing of an awesome, free, fun, adventurous, naked and unashamed sex life for everyone here, what you desire for them. That I, I pray, Lord, that you would provide them freedom in all aspects of their marriage. Refrigerators stocked with what you empower us to give each other because of what you've given us. Thank you, Father, for you being a father who loves to give good gifts. Help us to be good recipients of those gifts and good at passing them along to others. We are so grateful that you treasured us enough to come to lay down your life for us, your sheep, and to take it back up again in your son. We're so grateful that we pray all this. I pray your blessings on this church and on these marriages. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May you make your face shine upon us and be gracious to us. I ask that you would lift your countenance up upon us and give us peace both now and forevermore. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.